We are Rogue Media Sports. Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the Pete Souza podcast, Kate Fagan covered the NBA beat for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's when I first met her. She also spent seven years at ESPN, and she's an incredible author. She's a thoughtful person. Her story is really amazing. Uh, 40% three-point shooter in college at Colorado. Uh, just a sharpshooter. I got to watch her play there and uh, get a chance to talk to her about her career now and, and, and why she walked away from ESPN uh, to do some very meaningful work. And she's still doing meaningful work, but she's also having a lot of fun today because she's a funny person, so she should be having fun. All right, here it comes. have an incredible your life story is is really impressive uh, all the way back to the first now you came into my world this is back <laughs> when you were still you were still playing hoops back in 2003 because I was working with that USA women's basketball team they were yep. trading in Colorado Seal Berry was the coach and yep. so I think you were going into your senior year and yep. and you guys came and and played with these guys you scrimmaged with those like Candace Parker Candace Wiggins Sharday Houston. I remember. Yeah. And he you was could, bombers. You, but, well, you could shoot the lights out. So that was pretty important. But it, like, Pete, that was like the moment I realized how fast evolution moves, like how fast generations move, how fast, especially in women's sports where it was like no funding and then funding. And then you saw the changes quickly. I mean, I was like one year out of CU and I was like, oh my God, the game has passed me by. Well, you still, it, it was pretty amazing to watch you guys. I mean, you, you certainly kept up with them, but it, there was clearly, I mean, this was a, a decorated all-star team. A lot of these, you know, women will be in the Hall of Fame, at least at least a handful of them. And, uh, yeah. you know, so to play against that team, uh, it was pretty cool to watch you. And then you develop, as far as your career, you go into journalism. Uh, I, I read that you always wanted to, or you always wanted to, when you were a kid, you wanted to do some writing for Saturday Night Live. Um mm-hmm. What happened there? Um, I did intern at Conan O'Brien. Oh, okay. Um, it, you know, it was one of those spe- so specific of a dream that like when you're coming out of playing hoops or, or school, if the only thing you're going to do is like write sketch comedy, you're really limiting your choices. <laughs> yeah. So, but the dream hasn't gone away. I mean, I this new podcast I do, we we write sketches. No, it's funny and, off the off the looking glass. It's it's yeah. a, it's a great pot, and it's. I was surprised. I mean, I knew you was a funny person, but how how funny it is, and how deliberately funny it is, and it's and it's successful in that regard. Yeah. So that's kind of like scratching that SNL itch. I still like once a year I Google like how to apply for <laughs> SNL writing. And they like legit have an open period where you can write an entire packet of, of sketches. And 
assuming they read through all of them, but like you have to, I mean, it's a huge packet and I've never quite set aside the time, nor am I sure I'd, I, I would accept the job if I got <laughs> it, which I probably wouldn't. <laughs> well, you have a lot going on and, and your yeah. career, I, I've heard you mention, and whether this, I remember you telling me this years ago um, when you were covering the Sixers as a beat writer and I was doing PR for the team, you, you wanted to write fiction, I think, originally, right? You, you mentioned that. Yeah. How, yeah, you so you always had kind of writing in your bones, but you wanted yeah. to start out with fiction writing. But where else does a, a former basketball player go than to writing That's about right. sports, that wants to write about sports than to writing yeah. about basketball? Yeah, I, I certainly, if I'd had a trust fund, I would have sat around and like tried to write the next great American novel, or maybe I would have gone to like a, a you know an MFA in writing if I would have gotten into one of those. But I, I didn't really have the appetite to do that or the resources. And so I thought, you know, I want to write and there aren't that many avenues to get paid for any kind of writing, even halfway creative. And there, there is a lot of latitude in sports writing to be creative. By the end of my, that third year with the Sixers, I was like knocking on my boss's door, like trying to like, let me write long form features because I felt like I had exhausted the creativity of a gamer, you know? Yeah. yeah uh -huh. And I was getting myself in trouble with how I was writing columns. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to need, I'm going to need to move on from this at some point soon. How was that, you know, introduction? Like I was there to witness it. I mean, I was kind of out of it at the time. I'm, I'm, I've been sober 11 years now. I was definitely, I was, we lived in the same building, uh, 640 mm -hmm. uh, North Broad Street. Um, yep. And you were cool. I would see you around. I mean, it was just very, you were a very warm person, just in a great writer, just a cool person to have, you know, cross paths with around that time. But you seemed prepared for that job. Uh, was the, Does that go back to your childhood with your dad playing hoops with him growing up? Because you were around dudes all, and this is before, I mean, this is kind of, this is before it was totally integrated. There were some real rock star female writers, but there weren't as many as there are now or personalities yeah. in the locker rooms. Yeah, I just, I had I had rarely been in all female spaces, I mean, growing up. Like, I just didn't really, I, and I get the question, I would get the question a lot, even like after the Sixers and at ESPN, like, what's it like to be a woman in a male-dominated field? And I was like, well, I didn't, I had never really known differently because everywhere I went with my dad, I was almost always the only girl than teenager than woman. And so I never really thought of it like that. And I think that prepared me immensely to cover the Sixers, not just the basketball background, but I did, I, I tried not to have an air of like, I'm a woman covering an NBA team. <laughs> I, it was just like, Oh, I'm a hoop bird covering hoops is the energy i didn't even like consciously do this but i that is in retrospect how i like was trying to approach uh the, the sixers job and i would say i was prepared from like a culture standpoint and some of the intangibles that you can't teach like knowing how to interact yeah either on a basketball court or near a basketball court was something that was just second nature to me which can give you instant I mean, credibilities with guys and girls it doesn't matter basketball players just a body language thing Yes, exactly. But I think there were parts of the job that like I was learning on the fly that did come back to like haunt me a little bit. Like I, you know, I came from the Glens Falls Post Star to the Philadelphia Inquirer when we met. Yeah. And I went from like 
covering class D girls basketball in upstate New York to a year later covering an NBA team, which also required developing sources and understanding who to trust and who not to trust about who you're talking to. And a lot of that stuff is institutional knowledge and didn't grow up in Philly, grew up a Knicks fan. So it's like, there was a lot of things that I was, and that I was learning on the fly um, about sourcing and journalism and trades and the NBA world from a business standpoint that I felt a little overwhelmed by. Well, people see you now. I mean, this, this is what happens when people ascend and okay, here's the polished version of, of, of Kate, you know, and very successful New York Times bestselling author, but there is a learning curve. Was was there like a welcome to the NBA moment or a, any particular instance where you were like, wow, this is going to be, like you said, this this is a little different. It's, it's quite possibly at times overwhelming. Oh, yeah. Okay. So here is, here is when I was like, wow, I am up to my chin in this, like, and I'm not sure that I can swim. It was... I mean, this is like really inside baseball, but you'll maybe remember it. Uh -huh. um, the Sixers hadn't yet re-signed Andre Iguodala. He was a free agent that summer. And it was the summer that the Sixers signed Elton Brand. Mm -hmm. And this is your first and summer, correct? This is my first summer. Yeah, there's I'm a like, lot going on in the offseason. Two weeks on the job. And I played in the Big 12. And so Kareem Rush, who yes. played in Missouri, was a name I knew. And the Sixers signed Kareem Rush that summer. And I just like was so lucky because my college teammate was dating an Indiana Pacer. And Kareem Rush was coming from the Pacers to sign with the Sixers. And so I actually confirmed the story first. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh my God, this is some epic beginner's luck. <laughs> but mind you, that was my only source. But it was a pretty direct one. It was like a teammate of his, he has told a teammate of his that he has signed with the Sixers. And so I go with the story and there's like a two hour time period, one where like, I I realize that I have gone with this story and maybe I don't have like the second and the third confirmation where I'm like, what if he doesn't sign with the Sixers? Like what will happen to me? He does sign with the Sixers. But the second part of this is that I was so not well versed on like at that moment what the Kareem Rush signing meant versus re-signing Andre Iguodala. Like I, I wasn't at that yeah. time I wasn't watching 82 NBA games. So in my mind, they were both guards. And it was Andre Iguodala's agent who's Rob Rob Palinka, yeah. He actually called me personally and was like hey, you're new and I just, I, I see in things you're writing on your blog where you're kind of hinting that like signing Kareem Rush has any kind of impact on what the Sixers may do with Andre. And like, you need to know that like, they have nothing to do with each other. And I, it was a very kind thing for him Yeah, it's pretty do. cool to do. Yes. Yeah. So it was like, it was that entire interaction, that's that couple week period where I was like, wow, there is so much context that I cannot apply to the things I'm writing. Like, I just didn't have the frames of reference of somebody who had, like, been covering the league for a decade. It's quite the fire hose to drink from. You're in Philly. People are crazy. That summer was nuts. I remember Mike Preston, who's the PR guy with the Pacers now, he was actually out in Vegas, and he came home because they were signing out in Brand, and then I went out to replace him in Vegas. 
there was so much stuff going on. I remember when they signed Elton Brand, um, Cheeks, Maurice Cheeks was the head coach of the Sixers at the time, and he in a celebratory mood. He was like, hey, everybody can go home. We're going to be good. People thought they were going to win a championship. Yeah. People were very, very excited. No, it was not the case. Uh, so I want to—I can't keep you forever, but I want to kind of go through your career because it is so interesting, and we'll get to hoop muses, uh, hoop muses before we go. You end up going to ESPN from Philadelphia. How does—and and I'm sure I'm missing something—but how does that transition take place for you? And what did you? We all know what you experienced from what we saw. A lot of around the horn, a lot of television towards the end of of your time there. What were you going to ESPN to do? First of all, two-pronged. How did it happen, and why, yeah. why was Kate Fagan, somebody who, who writes with purpose, why were you going to ESPN? You know, I, I think the only reason I got to ESPN when I did, because I had kind of heard, you know, in the process of, of joining ESPN, certain people being like, you know, she's, she needs another job first, right? Like ESPN, of course, thinking of itself as like the destination. Yes. Um, but I got a little bit lucky in that that year was the 40th anniversary of title nine and ESPN was investing a lot of resources and storytelling into that 40th anniversary. And it, it included, they did like nine for nine films. So They're they did awesome. nine for nine documentaries yeah. and was it let so them was, wear robes. That was a good, that was a great one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about women in the long Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. And there was a full website. Let them wear towels, by the way. <laughs> My Let bad. them wear towels, yeah. <laughs> robes, yes. towels, okay. Robes, towels. Yeah, we're still fancy. in the bathroom, okay. Sorry. You're a fancy guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, one of the women who was in charge of putting that project together, the 40th anniversary, wanted me on board to write and help produce a lot of like the pieces, the columns that were going to be coming out on this uh, Title IX site. And so... That was kind of like my foot in the door for ESPN. I it wasn't I didn't go to ESPN to cover the NBA, which would have been a natural step from the Sixers. I went really to cover women's sports and to like really write about Title IX, which was kind of a full circle moment for me, having played college basketball and not even knowing a lot of the history and finding it really fascinating. So I, that's how I got into ESPN and it was like a, a two year contract. And then did you have an agent? No. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't have an agent until the, um, everything kind of popped off with like the Ray Rice domestic violence yeah. scandal and ESPN was putting people on TV, trying to talk about it. Like, you know, ex NFL players who just did not understand the, the context of, of domestic violence or, saying certain things that were more about fantasy football than they might be about yeah. the action. It was unfortunate. Uh, Too many people were like learning out loud during yes. that, that, that whole situation. And you were one of the people that ESPN kind of throws into the fire. Hey, let's get, you know, you bring us some context on this now. Uh, yes. Which kind of, I, I, looking back, kind of had to suck in a sense where, okay, now you're, it's, it's great because it's, it's kind of outside the lines, this stuff that you like to do. But at the same time too, it's super heavy. And you're thrown oh, yeah. right into that fire as like, okay, we're talking about women uh, around sports. It's going to have to be important. Like, it's important yeah. now. Let's get Kate. Like, what was there pressure oh. with that? Oh, Pete, it was like, it got to the point where you would, you know, I'd be at home and you'd see something break across Twitter, like college athlete video surfacing of some interaction. And yeah. I was just like, what if, I was like, oh, here we go. It's going to be like, 
trotting out the wet blankets, yeah. you know, it really became, it really became tough to deal with because these were things I cared about, but I like whether it was like LGBT rights or the domestic violence issues or any number of very heavy topics at that time, I, they weren't a reflection of what it would be like if we were hanging out of who I am. A hundred percent. You could, you could, you could theorize that like hanging out with Bomani Jones is like what it's like listening to the right time. Yeah. Uh -huh. And there was no forum at ESPN where I could really be all that funny um, or really be who I am. And that became one of the reasons I, one of the many reasons I, I decided to leave was like, I even think to this day, there will be times like if I don't spend much on, time on Twitter, but if I do, there's this perception that anytime I'm going to talk about sports or talk about anything, it's to like reprimand people. Well, people still, people still like might have that like reaction yes. because, because of all the important things ESPN would go to you for to have you weigh in on. Yes. And it didn't, it got to a point where I was like, if you, if you came over for dinner to my house, we could go hours without me saying one serious thing. Yeah. Like it, it would all just be sarcastic banter. And it was like, how have I developed this reputation that like, I'm not funny. I'm not like uh, interesting to be around. I, like I'm just basically an angry woman. <laughs> and, and like, I just was like, I, I just felt like I couldn't change it. There was like no way to change it. How was it when you're going, because you were getting a ton of run on um, around the horn right before you left. I mean, that was something, I mean, of course, you're a featured writer, um, a feature writer, and then, you know, you, you, outside the lines, you did a lot of great stuff for them. But, you know, now you're on this, this, this show, which I love around the horn. I love PTI, yeah. but it's also, it's, it's brain candy. It's popcorn. It's fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's really no resolution to the things we're talking about we just talk about this stuff and it's like okay the next day we're not even talking about what you said yesterday just to go on to the next thing which which you could have said something either terribly wrong or terribly right the day before yeah. did that have something was there a lack of fulfillment on being on that stage for such a long time yeah and i think it was a very if it was very personal to me the lack of fulfillment because there's a lot of my colleagues who I'm still friends with love doing that show and get so much out of it because they're really good at the zingers uh -huh. and they take a lot of pride in just being incredibly nimble on that show. Um, and I could never on around the horn, I could really never let go of the self-awareness and but like when someone else was making a point, I was like practicing my point. Uh -huh. And so I was never great at like reacting to what someone else said and like getting that fulfillment of like of, of a great conversation gives you mm -hmm. regardless of whether you're going to take stock of the conversation the next day. You're like, that was a satisfying conversation. Yeah. And I always struggled on around the horn because it was I, I never got that kind of feeling from it and I could never contribute to it in that way because I had so much stress about not fucking up on it. Well, you probably were contributing to it, but you just didn't in that way. You right. just probably you weren't conscious of it. Not in the it. way yeah. I thought they uh -huh. like wanted me to. I yeah. always felt like I was never on the Halloween show. <laughs> Rightfully so. Because like I wasn't like 
I didn't have like a stand-up comedic background, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I was never on the Halloween show. What the hell's going on? Um, yeah, you're such a such a victim in that regard. No, but that's <laughs> I, I can see kind of what you're saying. Now you're being painted with this brush of, okay, and then it's kind of like uh, who you're becoming. So yeah. it's pretty amazing, your story. You leave ESPN. Now, what made Maddie run? That is... A, a woman, a young runner for at Penn, uh, took her own life, and and you choose to write about this topic. Now, are you at ESPN when you do that? Yeah, yeah. it started out as an article for a, a ESPN the magazine. Mm-hmm. They were doing themed issues, and they had like a perfection issue, and so they slated that story in it because in it we talked a lot about perfectionism, um, what would now be considered like destructive perfectionism. Yeah. And so it started out as a magazine story, and then about a year after that, or maybe a year and a half, I did. I, I went back to her family, and we did like a book-length work. An, an, an amazing piece of work. I mean, a New York Times bestseller. It's one of those. It's one of those books that has legs as far as it still remains. It, it's a teaching tool today, and it's also an opportunity for people to read about this young woman's life. Now, you, as a young woman, excelled playing hoops at Colorado. Um, and under, I mean, that's big time college basketball. You're playing for Seal Barry, you're playing in the Big 12. Uh, you see how Maddie was affected by the running culture or whatever, the perfection culture. What, dif- what difference did you see between yourself and her? You know, what, what, was there, did you have a healthier outlook on it? Uh, were you able to say, hey, uh, I was lucky that I was able to tap into this um, a different way? Or you get what I'm saying? No, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think I always, once I decided to move past just the magazine article and, you know, the magazine article is like, you know, a year of my life, but that's not the only thing I'm doing. But then the book, it's like, okay, you're really going to live in this world. And that's when I would ask myself the questions of like, do I want to live in a world for a full year where I'm like trying to remake the final days and decisions of somebody who's in such a dark place? And that's when I really was trying to assess how much of my life overlapped with Maddie's because part of the reason I was drawn to that story initially was I had played college basketball, like you said, and I tried to quit and I was really, I had a lot of anxiety and and some panic attacks that year that I tried to quit. And I didn't think I had ever really resolved how difficult being a student athlete was. And it wasn't something that a lot of the other student athletes I ran into at ESPN who had gone on to play professionally, possibly like we didn't talk about no. it like at the time. And, um, and so I was like, all right, I think I have a lot to say about this. Not to mention my sister ran division one. And I always thought running in college was like, took a very specific breed of person. So I had that in common, but like the more, like I looked, you know, I had Maddie's computer and obviously I talked to like dozens of people in her life. I could see that we related to one another, like up to a point. And that point was that I never had what I would say was like a depression, like a clinically diagnosed depression that didn't run in my family in any way, in in any meaningful way that like my parents conveyed to me. Whereas Maddie was absolutely clinically depressed Mm -hmm. and it was genetic. And so I think, but what 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 I did try to do, like in what made Maddie run, is not just write a book for students or student athletes who might feel like Maddie, but write a book 
that actually would 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 be interesting to a student athlete or a student who felt like I did. Yeah. Which was like this experience for whatever reason, whether it's like the way the NCAA works, the way youth sports works, the way our culture works, the way so- social media works, like this experience is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I wanted to like write something that a whole lot of student athletes would be like, yes. And yeah. then also the ones who truly like felt the depth of the darkness that Maddie did as well. Like I wanted them to also relate to it as well. Yeah. And I appreciate that as somebody who, you know, has dealt with addiction in my life and like, you know, alcoholism being a disease, like you really do when you, when you, when you shine a light on it, you say, hey, you know, she wasn't just bummed out. You know, she yeah. wasn't just like going through a dark time. She was clinically depressed. Like there are things that people can do to escape this or to at least try to. Um, yeah. And so you putting a light on a story like that, it's it's a really cool thing. And, and you continue to evolve. I think everything you talk about kind of being, and I'm going to use this word, a little empty sometimes, your experience at ESPN. You totally, I mean, you really come around about in full circle as far as you go, you leave ESPN and you go to be with your father who has ALS, who was obviously a huge influence on you growing up as a kid. How, where'd you get the courage to make that decision to leave ESPN, to go back to, I guess it's Albany, right? Where your dad is? Schenectady. Schenectady, yeah. If there's any 518ers who listen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you go back home. Where did you get the courage to, to make a move like that? Because you even said yourself, your dad, who's sick, loves seeing you on ESPN more than you love being on ESPN. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I appreciate you calling it courageous. If anything, I felt like it took me far too long. <laughs> I mean, I he was sick for a while, and I was still doing the ESPN thing, like prioritizing other aspects. I and mean, some of it was his own denial, which... I think I had less denial than he had about the disease. Like he just wouldn't accept that he had ALS until very, very late. And your, your father's a guy who played hoops in college, played yeah. overseas. I mean, an exceptional yeah. basketball player, an athlete. So he's one of those people. I, I, I get it, right? I'm fine. I'll be okay. You yeah. don't need to come home. One of those deals. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, a, it, it, like eventually what it led to was just like a collision. Well, I will tell you the, the final catalyst was – the last year I was at ESPN, I had, you know, I've been like, well, if I'm going to stay at ESPN, I better make sure I'm doing things that I think are meaningful. So I, I stopped doing around the horn as much. And I started doing outside the lines. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I, I was filling in for Bob Lee when he was on vacation. Yeah. I was doing a Friday show that they were doing every Friday. Um, I was trying to do E60s and, and certain And that things. was the best. I mean, th- th- those are those are some of my favorite things on, on the network. Yes. Yeah, it's that place where you feel like meaning and sports collide. Mm-hmm. And um, and then as we as anyone who follows ESPN knows, like Bob Lee decided to take a sabbatical. And then after that sabbatical, he decided to retire. But I was one of his backup hosts when he decided to take a sabbatical and like, ostensibly this is what i want right like i am the backup host for outside the lines so i'm not saying espn would have picked me but if he's on sabbatical that should be like you're the backup shooting guard and the shooting guard went down and you're in the game yeah you're excited and i wasn't i was like oh no i was like i don't want him to go on sabbatical (laughs) i don't want to host the show for six consecutive weeks yeah like 
very eye-opening, absolutely not, no, 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 I don't want this. And it was like, my reaction to that being like, well, why am I prioritizing this thing that I'm telling myself I want, but my body is clearly saying I don't over really meaningful connection with my dad and all of those other things. And so it was like that, I think that Bob going, Bob Lee going on sabbatical was like really eye opening for me. And it was kind of the final thing being like, I can't resign. I, I just can't keep doing this. I have to, you know, I ha I've got to make some changes in my life about what I'm prioritizing. And so you do have that self-awareness where you make this a pretty huge leap uh, yes. and, and you go and you go to write this book and you're, you know, you look at a story uh, from 30,000 feet of here's this young girl. She grows up with her dad. She's like his sidekick. You know, she becomes this incredible shooter, uh, you know, thanks to him. And then, but, but there's like a, there's like a splintering that takes place at, at some point. And you go back home to kind of see him off, spend time with him, but also to possibly, you know, bring this back together. What, what were you able to accomplish by going back home? Uh, writing and writing that book and being with him. Well, the the thing that was helpful for me was that like there was no book until like there wasn't a book in the moment. Okay. So so that was helpful to me because I wasn't thinking of my interactions with him as a book, right? Because yeah, if, uh -huh. if I had already been like I'm going to do a book, and um, so the book came second. So the book came second. So you just went home to be with your dad. Okay. I just went home to be with him. Okay. And. Um, and then it was a couple months after he died, my mom was down here in Charleston. And that's when I was like, hey, if I did do a kind of like Tuesdays with Maury for the next generation kind of book, like I was asked my mom, I was like, would you be cool with that? And um, she was effusive and being supportive of it. So the book came after, which is very helpful for me in terms of, I don't think there could have been a book if I'd been thinking of it as a book. Yeah. And it's cathartic almost afterwards, I, I would imagine, maybe. Yeah. And so I I really went home and I had nothing going on. Like, I, 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 I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to work here. Or I'm going to, I was, do, I was nothing. I was nobody, right? Like, I was just Chris Fagan's daughter <laughs> um, going home, making in some coffees, watching shows with him, just hanging out. And that was really nice in, a, in its own way. And I, if he hadn't been sick, one, I wouldn't have done it. But if he hadn't been sick and I had done it, I would have been panicky, right? Like, ah, I, I got off the treadmill of life and how, am I ever gonna get back on? But I don't know, you know, the, the whole like idea of the kingdom of the sick is like, if you live in that kingdom, it's almost like the real world doesn't exist. You're in this separate kingdom. And that's very much what it felt like. It wasn't my sickness, it was his, but it was kind of like, a, you know, the curtain was drawn around the rest of the world for me. And um, it gives perspective on things out, outside that kingdom. Yeah. Cause it's like really yeah. how important is that treadmill looking right now? Not that important, yeah. you know, cause no. we're, we're, we got life and death here. How come more people don't do what you did? Um, I mean, it. I was very lucky in that like I, some people can't leave their jobs. You know, like I, I was lucky in that I had been at ESPN for seven years at that point. If I wanted to take a year off, like I wasn't going to lose my house, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but I think there's a lot of people 
who don't do it maybe because they weren't lucky enough to have like a dad who built the bomb that you want to repair you know like I, i chalk a lot of that up to him um in that in writing that book and in talking to so many people, like there's a lot of people who would never pick that book up because they didn't have a great relationship with their dad. Yeah. More so than people who were like, Oh, like I really connected with that. More people were like, I wish my dad had shown up. So I don't know. I mean, I think I don't, I don't, I really don't think I like did something monumental. I think I just got, I, I think I got really lucky. Um, all the way up to the fact that I got to repair my relationship with him and that I don't live the rest of my life in that swirl of like, oh man, I never got to tell him how I felt. Like, it's a heavy I- word, but regret, right, is, is, is what bubbles yeah. up. You think you think of regret. You had, it's so interesting, a couple things about, about this book and then I'll move on and we'll wrap up here. Your, your dad, he kind of, for lack of a better term, like trained you almost as far as basketball was concerned. I mean, you started to play... I guess pick up with him when you were like twelve. You you would actually play in the games when you were like eleven or twelve with all men, right? I mean, so it's like it's a pretty unbelievable story. But then you you become this incredible basketball player, all time leading scorer at your high school, and then you go to Colorado. Now your dad lives in in New York State, and you really never talk to him about that decision, um, yes. which you say looking back probably was a little bit of a kick in the balls. Um, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> right. So how did how the hell did that happen? How does that like? Because as kids, I was lucky enough too. I got a scholarship to go to the University of Richmond, and I didn't really. I, it's funny. We are kind of in our own little worlds. I wasn't really thinking about who cared where I went. I just went. You know, um, what was your experience with that? And did you realize at the time, um, or I guess I should say, how soon did you realize that he was like a little hurt by that? Um. It, I don't think I was fully aware of it until I was 30 and he wasn't sick yet. You know, he, he, um, he gave me the space to make the decision, but you know, I mean, he was a little passive aggressive in terms of like some of his pent up anger he had at me or disappointment, I would say, right. He was never angry at me, but like, I think it lurked in the back of his mind. From then on, that, well, I love asking this stuff. Where, where else could you have gone, or where else did you think about going in the Northeast? Um, I could have gone to UMass. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, not as good a program as Colorado. Yeah. I mean, really, he, like, he's a big driver, so he would have come to every game within a ten-hour vicinity. Yeah. So I took a, I took a official to the University of Richmond. Okay. As well. That's right. All right. Um. <laughs> So yeah, there was probably, I'm trying to think of things I actually could have gone to. I, I very much could have gone to like a Seton Hall or like any biggie school other than UConn. Yeah. Um, Syracuse, like Siena was right down the road. These are great um, schools. Yeah. Um, and, and so yes, in his mind, there was like, there was dozens of schools <laughs> within a four hour radius that I could have gone to and he could have seen me play and we could have, and like, it really would have enriched in his life, right? In my life too, but at the time I'm not thinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think he held on to that for a while. Like I remember we got in an argument when I was about 30 <laughs> and it was the first time he ever just said it clearly, right? And then he was like, you know, I'm not saying he said this, but something like, like, 
you're always making decisions for yourself, <laughs> right? Like never for the family, because he's a big he's a big Irish Catholic family uh-huh. guy. Yeah, yeah. Like you just go to Colorado, don't care who it hurts. <laughs> and that's when I was like, oh, this is like this is this has been a thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but we never, you know, we never addressed it head on in a calm, like, I love you. I'm sorry. I didn't like talk to you about this kind of way until he got sick. Um, but you did in in your own way, which is amazing. And, and and you, when you're in Colorado, you come out as gay Uh, and, and, but you you mentioned you told your mom, you didn't tell him. Did Mm -hmm. you like, because that's kind of what, I get that too. Like I, I would tell my mom a lot of stuff that I wouldn't tell my dad. My dad was just hardcore, you know? Um, so did he, like, when did you guys eventually reconcile that around the same time period when he was sick? Not that it's something to reconcile. When did you talk about it? Yeah. I think all around the time of like when they, when he was down here for my wedding, there was like a list of things that I really wanted to talk to him about in a very clear way. And one was just articulating that I understood the wonderful childhood that he had created and that it wasn't a, it wasn't usual for a dad to like treat his daughter the way he did in terms of like vouching for me and like all of those things. So I just wanted to say that to him because like I'd spent so many years being like, well, of course he knows. I think that of course. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also wanted to apologize that I did not come out to him directly because I think that that was a breach of trust and it led to a pattern of communication where we just avoided a lot of things about my life because I, I had sent us down that path. Now he had said things when I was growing up, like flipping things, you know, Yeah, sure. a lot of people hear their parents say in the eighties. Yeah. Um, So, so, so it was that. And then it was, um, also about the Colorado thing and just in general being like, I just felt like he was my best friend growing up and that had slipped away mm-hmm. and that I think it's natural to slip away, but I also wanted us to, I wanted to acknowledge all of the, everything that I saw him as. And we had that conversation. Yeah. The and book, the book is unbelievable. Yeah. All, all the colors come out or came out. Um, I want to get into a couple more things and then I'll let you get out of here. So you end up at, at Metal Arc. That's where you are now. Um, your podcast, Off the Looking Glass. What is it like working with, 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 I mean, I know obviously you had a great relationship with Dan Levitard when you were at ESPN. Um, and clearly John Skipper had a, a, a big part of being at ESPN when you were there. What is it like having the keys to the show that you kind of always wanted to have? Like the podcast, Off the Looking Glass, is you we talked about uh you know the the writer and and personality that wasn't able to be on the halloween show i mean that 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 is a halloween show in a sense so i mean it's serious but it's a lot of fun you know what is it what was it like for you to finally get that opportunity um yeah making off the looking glass has been pure joy because as you said it's just it's a culmination of 20 well like 18 years in this industry in terms of it's it's a lot of humor uh, it's a lot of actual storytelling that we try to do in a really rich dynamic way i mean i told dan when i was down in miami like soon after we launched off the looking glass that like i was just so thankful because 
The show takes a lot of time to make. It takes a lot the of production research. is really good. Yeah. The sound design's amazing. We have a sound designer. Like we have things that even at a place like ESPN, you wouldn't get, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be like, you want a podcast? Like you hit record essentially. And <laughs> there's your podcast. You know, you're not yeah. going to get like, you're not going to get a small budget to talk to a comedy team to, to bounce like sketch ideas off of. So it's, it's the kind of podcast that really can only exist in a startup. Right. Mm-hmm. Because like the second you're a publicly traded company, you're probably not. A hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, about certain things you've got legal coming in to talk to you um so yeah and it's about women's sports so you got to have an eye to the future because you're not gonna you're just not right now gonna get the exact same number of eyeballs on certain content that you do if you're talking about the nba um but the con- the eyeballs you do get or the listeners you do get are really passionate about about it and so it's like kind of a trade-off on that front why do people why do we come together and we watch the women's softball final, we, we love it. We watch the women's final four. I mean, we, we absolutely love it. And then, but WNBA, sometimes the numbers are behind. I mean, clearly there is a, we, we love, we watch women's sports. I mean, it has its time. We rally around it, right? And it's, they're great to watch and you can see the numbers climbing, but how come we haven't gotten there with consistency? Oh, Pete, you are, you are, you are you are on my soapbox right now. Do you want? I will get on my soapbox and give you. <laughs> Tell me. I mean, I'm. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I did a TEDx on on this exact question. Is basically like why. I saw you did the TEDx. By the way, I did not listen to it, so I swear I'm not like. Okay, so some is, homework yeah. after this because after you have done your homework. <laughs> yeah. I'm so impressed. Like this has been the most well-researched interview I have ever done. So thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, I did do a TED talk kind of on this topic. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. But like the the gist of it is just this idea because when I was at ESPN, I would ask myself that same question. Every four years, I'm being sent to the location where the Women's World Cup is because we've got all the budget in the world and we know people are gonna watch. Same with every four years when people will watch women's ice hockey. Um, So the question was always like, why? Like, what is it about those moments? And it really does boil down to to two things about why we watch sports. And that is, it's pretty simple. It's like stakes and storylines. Like we we all as a community have to agree that something matters that we're watching. And then we also have to just know some of the story of the people who are doing this thing that matters. Like the easiest way is to be like, the easiest way to illustrate it is if you've ever seen like the vignette about the Romanian gymnast ahead of that night's gymnastics event at the NBC, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like a seven minute story about, I don't know, they, they grew up in rural Romania, the, you know, the daughter of whatever. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I care about so-and-so, the Romanian gymnast. Yes. And now they're competing for an Olympic gold medal and Olympic gold medals matter. And then like, boom, like you can watch three hours and be like <laughs> really the best. Yes. Uh-huh. And, um, you can kind of like, you can test this theory out. If you watch Succession. Oh yeah, of you, course, yeah. Pilot episode. You'll remember. The baseball. Yeah, the baseball. Yeah. So what do you have? You have stakes because Logan Roy or his son, I forget. His Roman son, wants to give the kid a million Roman, bucks. A million dollars. He writes a check for a million dollars if the kid can hit a home run. Yes. All of a sudden this kid who's bad at baseball in a made up game you are invested in the outcome of this moment of his at bat. Um, and so you can see this play out a million times. And so when you talk about like the WNBA ratings, it's like, you know, 
we have not culturally agreed that a WNBA title matters yet, right? And ESPN does not produce any studio shows around yeah. WNBA. And they do for, no. look, I'm lucky enough, I call uh, some women's hoops for ESPN and uh, some women's softball too, and it's it's like we can in game as a play by play guy you can create storylines and you can tell the story but it really is important that there's a, a ramp right that, that that leads up to that that there's a runway for those stories and that you're not just learning about them right in 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 the game because have we gotten people to watch the game because of that story no, that, yeah mm-hmm. i i yeah. totally agree with you there yeah and so i think whenever you know in 2025 when those WNBA rights are up whoever the W sells them to, I have no doubt they will they will make that streamer or if it's ESPN again, commit to a whole lot of shoulder content, yeah. right? Like whether it's documentaries or studio shows, like there will be a minimum investment that needs to be made because it doesn't matter if they're going to pay him $100 million for the rights, if they're not going to put them on ESPN proper and they're not going to tell the stories around them, then it's not going to grow. Um, so... That's my soapbox, but I, I say it hopefully in a more eloquent manner in the TED Talk. All right, last question. Uh, the book, Hoops Muses, uh, it's you, and, and you do such a nice job bringing in uh, Simone Augustus. We talked about like kind of bringing street cred to something. Like It really does bring credibility. Uh, what is the most important part of, of that book, as you see it as an author? I mean, I feel like the whole thing is just supposed to be this like mythologizing of female athletes, because that's another kind of part that I've noticed being in media is even if we rally around a certain moment in time for women, like there's a really fast half-life to their relevance, you know, and then they have to build it back up. I mean, even U.S. women's soccer has had to do this. Mm -hmm. After 99, when they didn't win in, uh, when there was the SARS outbreak and then they didn't win in 2007, like their fan base had dwindled. Yeah. Leading up to that header by Abby Wambach in 2011 in Brazil that sort of like ramped everything up again. And so it's like this idea that culture does not mythologize women. You know, they don't do the they don't do the scripted shows about them. They don't do the posters about them. They don't do a book like Hoop Muses where you're you're telling them in or you're even illustrating them in this like larger than life way. Yeah. And so that was really kind of the north star of Hoop Muses was like creating this book that would be fun and cool and really like pop off the page. It's a beautiful also, book. Would, yes. would you, could you, you could even call it a coffee table book. I mean, That's it really what is. It is. Yeah. It's not like a kid's book. Like you're going to yeah. read it to your kid in bed. Yeah. It's not a book I would expect you to read from cover to cover. It's yeah. a book that you would like, you'd pick up and you'd be like, read one quick chapter on and then yeah. maybe not look at it again for another month. But then people, but it's supposed to be like just a really beautiful book that exists in your home. Well, it exists, and it's because of you. Thank you so much, Kate. Any Anything else? Anything I left out? No, but this was awesome. Yeah. I'm really glad we did this. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. You're awesome. I'll shoot you a link when it goes up. And, I, and I'm going to drop for people listening. I'm dropping the TED Talk in the show notes. Kate, thank you so much. I appreciate awesome. you. You got it. All right. Thanks. You got it. Bye-bye. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.
We are Rogue Media Sports.